0: This was a warship built in Sweden in the 17th century that sank within minutes of its maiden voyage beginning. Now, that in and of itself is pretty funny, but the story gets a lot better when you learn why it sank, because the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, had some very particular ideas about how he wanted this ship built, and these ideas did not pan out all that well. But what's really remarkable, not quite as funny, but very remarkable about the Vasa is this, it's still around today in exceptional condition, despite having sunk over three centuries ago. You can go and see this ship for yourself in a museum in Stockholm. After after sinking back in 1628, the Vasa remained extremely well preserved at the bottom of Stockholm's harbour before eventually being razed and whacked into a museum where, as I say, it still lives to this very day. While most old shipwrecks deteriorate and decay, the Vasa has survived. It is the best preserved 17th century warship on the planet. Not that there is a lot of competition for that title, admittedly. But as a symbol of Sweden's burgeoning power in the early 17th century, the Vasa has come to represent the might of the Swedish Empire, which is not entirely appropriate, considering that, you know, it sank before getting out of the harbour, but still, we'll, we'll we'll let them have it. The story of the Vasa's conception, construction and very brief maiden voyage is uh, is very interesting indeed. Uh, but then there's also the story of its recovery and its conservation. So as you can imagine, a lot to get across today. But first, thanks go to alert listeners JJ, Ola, Rachel, Enrique, Lucas, all of these listeners suggested uh, that I get across the Vasa. And in addition to that equally alert listener, Ola Santerson got in touch to request some more some more Swedish history. So I'm very happy to oblige. Uh, let's get on with it here. Let's get, uh, let's get underway, have a chat about the vast, a bit of naval history for us all to enjoy. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 1611, when the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus inherited the throne from his dad, Charles IX. Gustavus Adolphus is widely credited with completely transforming Sweden. Before the 17th century, Sweden was a Relatively insignificant and somewhat poor kingdom without much to say for itself. But by the end of the 17th century, it was one of Europe's major powers. And a lot of this was because of old mate Gustavus, who centralised the Swedish government, built up its military and kicked ass up and down the Baltic Sea and into the European continent proper. Even today, King Gustavus is highlighted as the world's first modern general. This is what's really important about his reign. He utilised what were back then bleeding edge military techniques like combined arms and cross training in conjunction with the latest weapons technology and absolutely rigid troop discipline. And he was rewarded for this with a lot of success on the battlefield. Napoleon himself, episode 211, 212, get across him, named Gustavus Adolphus as one of the greatest generals of all time. So this bloke really wasn't mucking around. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that he, from the, the sort of preliminary pre- preliminary research I did on Gustavus Adolphus, he seemed to be a decent enough bloke, reasonably progressive, set the tone for governance in the early modern era, taking power away from the, from the nobility, giving it to commoners. Uh, he built and opened schools. He enriched his country and its people throughout his reign, although he was... An unapologetic warmonger. A lot of the prosperity that Sweden enjoyed under his reign was because he was off bloody kicking heads in on the battlefield up and down Europe. And uh, yeah, he never shied away from a fight, often went looking for him too. Almost everything else that Gustavus did was secondary to waging war. The entire kingdom was bent to the task of fighting and winning armed conflicts while he was in charge. But look, the reason I'm telling you all this, right, the reason I'm telling you about this bloke and his role in Swedish history is to better characterise why and how the Vasa was built in the way that it was, and and also to highlight just how funny its ultimate fate ended up being. In the 1620s, after Gustavus had been in charge for a decade or so, Sweden's navy is in a bad way, and this is where the story of the Vasa begins. Sweden was at war, obviously, don't need to tell you that, you can just take that as while Gustavus is, is, is in charge here. But uh, take, Sweden had taken a bit of a battering on the sea. They'd lost ships to the Polish, they'd lost ships to Storms, they'd even lost a ship to their own crews after the Swedish blew up one of their own warships rather than let it get captured by their enemies. And Gustavus recognises the need to bolster his navy. And so in 1625, he I think about things and he decides he's going to have some new ships built. But not just any old ships, let me tell you, at the time... The prevailing approach to naval warfare was to build small, manoeuvrable ships suited for boarding, because back then you would defeat an enemy ship by boarding it. That was the done thing. Gustavus, however, he's starting to have some other ideas here. He is a big fan of artillery. I mentioned that he was very, very ready to adopt the latest and greatest in military and weapons technology. Loves a bit of a bit of artillery, loves a cannon. And so he thinks to himself, what if we build a great big bastard of a ship and fill it with heavy Artillery turned it into a mobile firing platform with enormous firepower. How about that? And he was ahead of his time with his thinking. Let me tell you, uh, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be too long until broadsides completely replaced boarding as the decisive element of naval of naval combat. But Gustavus was there. He, he was there before a lot of other people got to, got to that conclusion. So. With this pioneering idea in his head, he summons his shipwright, a fellow whose name was Henrik Hibbertson, commonly known as Master Henrik, Dutch by birth, very famous for his skill when it came to shipbuilding. And the king summons, he says, G'day, Master Henrik, thanks for coming in for a little chat. Mate, I've had an idea. You know how uh, you know how we need new ships for this for the Swedish Navy? Well, I've summoned you because I want you to build me something, something very, very special here. And Henry goes, my, oh, Matt, your majesty, mate, what, what have you got cooking? Can't wait to hear this. Let's get it going. Can't wait to get down the shipyard on the tools and build you a new ship. And Gustavo says, well, look, listen to this. Never mind all them tiny little scrappy ships you've been building, because that's old news, mate. This is the 17th century. This is the future, mate. We're going to build some enormous ships. Great big pricks they're going to be. And we're going to fill them with more cannons than you can count. And Hendrik goes, oh, I don't know, Majesty. I, I don't want to brag, but I can count pretty high. How many cannons are we? How many cannons are we thinking here? And the king says, I don't know, mate. What about? Uh, what about sixty? What about seventy? You reckon we can uh, sneak a few more on? How does that sound? What do we reckon? And Master Hendrik goes, mate, sixty, seventy guns. Holy moly! How bloody big are these ships going to be? These are going to be bloody big bastards. If that's the case, forty or forty or fifty meters long, I'd say. And Gustavus goes, well, all right, no worries, get it done, old son. Just you get your saw and your plane and your, your awl. No, that's a that's a leather working tool. I don't know. Whatever you bloody use, just just get down to the docks and get on the tools. All right, mate. And Master Henrik, right, he agrees. He signs a contract to build four ships for Gustavus. And these are bloody big ships for the time, not the biggest ships that the world has ever seen, certainly not on that level, but very, very big ships, particularly uh, when it came to naval combat, because as I say, the focus was on boarding, manoeuvrability, speed, that sort of thing. So, Master Henrik, he lays down the timber for the first ship, which would uh, go on to become the Vasa in early 1626, and then, what he does next is very interesting, he dies. Um, yeah, sorry about that, shouldn't have... Shouldn't have spent so long setting him up as a as a character, should I? You're you're all so invested in Master Henrik, and that's the end. That's the end. Well, it's not quite the end of his stories. We'll come to. But it's it's the end of it's the end of him taking an active part in this story at least. But uh, look, to make things a bit easier for you here, I'm happy to say that uh, work was continued by another Dutch shipwright, who most conveniently for us was also named Henrik Henrik Jacobson. So we continued on the Vasa using Master Henrik's plans, and uh, look, without wanting to spoil too much here, these plans were not perfect. The king was very involved in designing the ships and very uh, specific in what he wanted in these mighty in his mighty new fleet of uh, of artillery laden warships. Um, and look. I don't want to I don't want to be too hard on Master Henrik we you know we all bloody love Master Henrik one of half history's favorite characters but um yeah look it's the early 17th century and even a as skilled as Master Henrik didn't have the fullest understanding of the principles of shipbuilding required to build a great big bastard of a warship with 60 guns on it and uh, while he did his best to draw up plans that were going to accommodate the king's wishes uh, yeah well look you'll find out how it ended uh, soon enough anyway New Henrik, right, he continues work uh, throughout 1627. Uh, and by 1628, things are coming along, uh, you know, pretty well. Gustavus made a visit to the shipyard. How's it going, New Henrik? Very well, Your Majesty. You're going to be so many guns on this thing, you're not going to believe it. Uh, Gustavus wanted so much artillery uh, on the Vasa that Master Henrik had squeezed an extra gun deck into the hull, taking space away from the hold and compressing the decks vertically so as to fit all of them in. Ships didn't have two gun decks back then, generally speaking, so the Vasa was set to be a pioneering piece of shipbuilding. Um, But again, I should note at this point that the Vasa wasn't going to be the biggest ship on the seas back then. And for all of Gustavus' talk about how many guns he wanted on, it actually wasn't going to be the ship carrying the greatest number of cannons. So what's the big deal, you're thinking? Well, it was going to be the ship carrying the greatest amount of firepower. Because it wasn't just about how many cannons the ships had. It was about what sort of cannons they were. And the Vasa was designed to carry enormous, great big heavy cannons, artillery that could outgun any other ship on the sea at the time based on pure weight. It would be able to fire a greater weight of shot than any other ship back then, especially compared to how big it was as, as a ship. By way of comparison, right... Um, ships that were built a century later had similar firepower as the Vasa did while being way, way, way bigger. So what's really notable about the Vasa is not its size, because, again, it wasn't the biggest ship on the sea at the time, and not how many, not the sheer number of guns that it had on it, but the fact that, pound for pound, it could essentially outgun ships that were being built a century later. The amount of firepower that had been packed onto the Vasa was absolutely astronomical it was designed to pack a huge punch although as we'll come to this this design didn't end up holding much water well actually no sorry it ended up holding rather too much water an entire ship's worth in fact which is not typically what you're after in the bus- in the business of shipbuilding anyway work continued on this mighty ship into 1628 both on the structure the hull and the, de- the decks and the masts and whatever else but also on the decorations the Vasa. The Vasa was to be richly decorated with intricate detailed sculptures, particularly towards the rear, oh, sorry 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 the stern of the ship near the steerage. Um, the ornamentation on the ship was ridiculous, lavish and over the top bright painted colors, gold leaf, sculptures of everything, from mythical Roman and Greek figures to Old Testament stories to depictions of sea monsters. And there was even a portrait of Gustavus himself incorporated into the ornamentation. Um, The ship was designed to impress friend and foe alike. Friends would be impressed by the dazzling, almost garish decorations that adorned the Vassar, while foes would be impressed by the hundreds of kilograms of cannon shot being blasted at them from a broadside. Anyway, by mid-1628, the ship is nearing completion. Very exciting, although there are some who have some uh, thoughts about it. When Swedish Vice Admiral Klaas Fleming turned up to inspect the Vasa before it was officially put to sea, he was uh, a little concerned about its seaworthiness, in particular, how likely it was to capsize. Now, why why did he have these concerns? Well, there are a couple of reasons. But all of them came back to one simple aspect of the ship's design, accommodating a lot of very heavy guns. As was common at the time, the Vasa was a very tall ship, and I don't mean that in relation to its masts, but rather its hull. Uh, Early 17th century sailing ships classically had a very high, I don't know what you'd call it, the hull, I guess. I don't know, all the nautical nerds will be beating down the doors of my inbox after this. Essentially, the distance from the waterline to the top of the the parts of the ship that you can stand on, right? The the hull, I don't know. Um, This distance was quite big like someone had taken the classic 18th century warship design that you that you think of when you imagine a sailing ship uh, and just stretched it vertically. You don't need to be an expert in nautical engineering to realize that the longer and higher and narrower a ship's hull is, the more likely it is to capsize as the center of balance is way off from where the center of buoyancy is. And um, This was definitely a problem with the Vasa because it had a high hull like most 17th century warships, but that on its own might not have been a problem. What made it a very big problem was then loading the ship up with thousands and thousands of kilograms of artillery, all of which, of course, sat above the waterline. And again, this isn't doing the ship's stability any favours at all. All It makes the ship's centre of gravity way higher than its centre of buoyancy, which means that it will tip over very easily. Think about it. You have a high, narrow hull, and then you start adding weight to the top of the hull, or towards the top, well above the water. It's going to topple over straight away. But this is the thing. Gustavus wanted lots of heavy heavy cannons, and he wanted them to be well above the waterline to give them the maximum amount of range and firepower. But the king... As gifted as he was in many aspects of the art of war, he was making a very bloody bad call with this proposed design, and this was a great concern of Vice Admiral Fleming, who witnessed a demonstration of the Vassar's stability, or lack thereof, when he visited in 1628. Thirty men boarded the ship, and as one, they ran from one side of it across to the other, And then back again, rocking it back and forth to test how stable the ship was on the water. And the answer to that was not very. So much so that Fleming called off the demonstration before the men had run back and forth four times. He was worried that the ship would, after all, capsize. But... I don't know how strongly Fleming presented his concerns to the king. It seemed like no one really wanted to speak up and and tell Gustavus Adolphus what was going on with the design of the Vasa. We got we got an emperor's new clothes situation here with this. And look, in any case, it's irrelevant. Gustavus Adolphus he wants the bloody thing on the water, no matter what. He was very emphatic on this point. And what the king wants, the king gets. No one wanted to stand up to. Gustavus. He wanted his new flagship and he wanted it now, irrespective of the issues that had been brought up with its seaworthiness, the Vasa was to set sail on its maiden voyage an unquestionable demonstration of Sweden's naval might and grandeur. And look, to that end, you couldn't fault the Vasa. It really was an apt absolutely magnificent specimen of a ship, bristling with 64 guns, sumptuously decorated with exquisite sculptures and vivid colour. They don't make them like this anymore, do they? Ships these days painted in their boring battleship grey, no sculptures, no bright colours, no nothing. They really don't make them like they used to. Which is probably a good thing to be honest because Them making them like they used to resulted in the Vasa very swiftly ending up at the bottom of Stockholm's harbour. Here's what happened. On the 10th of August 1628, on the King's orders and under the command of Captain Suffering Hansen, the newly completed Vasa set off on its maiden voyage. It was a nice day, calm enough, light breeze, but good sailing conditions. The Vasa was towed out along the Stockholm waterfront, which was to the rafters with thousands of locals who had all come down to see this spectacular ship set sail and they weren't the only ones either foreign diplomats stationed in stockholm had come down to watch the ship keen to take news of the swedish king's latest project back to their respective bosses whether friend or foe to sweden in fact the only person who was notably absent from this ship setting sail on its maiden voyage was king gustavus himself he was too busy can you guess Yes, a waging war. He's off fighting in Poland. Anyway, the Vasa is towed out to the southern end of the harbour. The sails are set and the ship begins to sail off under its own power to the east. The gun ports were opened and the cannons were wheeled out so as to fire an artillery salute. How splendid this striking testament to Swedish military might coursing across the harbour to meet its destiny. A destiny that it would find about 1,300 metres away. Oh, actually, no, wait, hang on. 1,300 metres away on the horizontal plane and then 32 metres down on the vertical plane. So what's that? Hang on, got to check with the old mate Pythagoras here, don't we? One second, hang on. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um. Some quick calculation just in, in my head, obviously tells me that it's 1,300 0.39 metres away? Really? That doesn't sound right. There's only 39 centimetres in it if you go along the hypotenuse of... Okay, sure, whatever. All right, well, I'm not going to argue with Pythagoras. The point I'm trying to make here is that the ship made it 1,300 metres into its maiden voyage before sinking to the bottom of the harbour. A gust of wind came along after it left the lee of some cliffs and the ship tilted over, but then righted itself. Okay, well, we'll see how we go. But then another gust of wind came along and this one was too much for the Vasa. The ship is so top-heavy with all the artillery that had been loaded onto it that when it tilted over to one side, it was it was like a metronome, mate. It, it, it was like a reverse pendulum. It swung over way further than it should have. And water reached the lower gun ports, and of course, then began to rush into the ship. As water flooded into the lower gun deck, the ship was unable to then right itself, because there was now more weight holding it over to one side. And obviously, this only resulted in more water pouring in. Within minutes, the Vassar's hull had completely flooded. This mighty warship was, as so many had predicted, far too unstable and a couple of gusts of wind had been enough to send it to the briny to send it to the briny shallows I guess because uh, as I alluded to before the ship sank 32 meters underwater into the mud at the bottom of the harbor although I I say I say the ship sank and most of it did but in in a in a in a very technical sense some of it didn't because the ship, right, from keel to crow's nest, was 52 metres high, once you include the masts, and the harbour, as I mentioned, was only 32 metres deep. So it wasn't deep enough for the entire ship to be beneath the water. Some of the mast was still poking out above the waterline at an angle because the ship was tilted to the side as it sank, obviously. But as hilarious as this mental image is, it was actually very fortunate for the people aboard that the Vasa sank in the way that it did with part of its mast sticking up above the water here. There were almost 450 people aboard the ship as it sank. And I'm happy to say most of them survived the disaster. They were able to swim over to the masts and the other bits of the ship that were poking above the waterline. And hold on to them, cling on to them for dear life until they were rescued, although I think some of them did swim the 120 metres or so to uh, to the shoreline that the Vasa had been sailing along. Happily, as I say, most survived, although sadly around 30 people went down with the ship, unable to escape from the lower decks before they filled with water. And that was the end of the Vasa, for a while at least, because its story is not yet finished. After the ship went under, efforts were made to inform the king as swiftly as possible, and as swiftly as possible in this case ended up being two bloody weeks. Again, he's off fighting in Poland. It took a long time to get the message over to him, and I don't envy the bloke who had to tell him. Apparently, Gustavus was absolutely spitting ships. He's hopping mad, as as you would be. He's absolutely furious. He demands an inquest. He demands those responsible for the sinking of the Vassa to be found and harshly punished. He is convinced that, quote, imprudence and negligence is why his precious ship sank. And, uh, well, yeah, he's right. I just don't think anyone was about to tell him whose imprudence and negligence it was. Anyway. An inquiry is set up, a tribunal is established, and the first person in the crosshairs is Captain Soffring Hansen, who did not go down with the ship. He survived the sinking. But it's definitely not his fault. Not only had he registered his concerns about the ship's seaworthiness, there is not a single sailor or involved party at large who has anything to say about this bloke. He ran a very tight ship, although only very briefly, and he kept his crew in good order. There's no hint of any kind that the capsizing had been his doing. So the tribunal keeps searching for a scapegoat. They go after all the ship's officers one by one. But again, they've all done their jobs. The crew was sober. The cannons were secured. The rigging was all ship No one aboard had any concerns or problems with how the ship was sailed and handled by its officers and crew. The problem, obviously, lay elsewhere. Well, all right, says the tribunal, get those, get these bloody shipbuilders in here. We'll have their guts for garters, mate. Where's that Henrik fella? No, not the, not the dead one, the other one. But when Henrik, Henrik Jacobson, the guy who had taken over from Master Henrik, when he was dragged in front of the tribunal, he had ironclad evidence as to why he wasn't to blame either. And no, he didn't just try to force the blame on Master Henrik, rest in peace, taken from us too soon. Uh, although he certainly could have taken that line. He could have taken that angle. It's good that he didn't. Instead... When he was asked why he built the ship so tall and narrow, so likely to capsize when laden down by artillery, he pointed out that he had made an attempt to widen the ship when he took over. Uh, He'd actually tried to widen the hull to improve its stability, but obviously this wasn't enough to prevent it from sinking. And then he went on to say that in the first place, he had been following Master Henrik's designs that had been personally specified by the King himself. And this shut down the inquiry pretty bloody quickly, let me tell you. Ultimately, no one was found guilty. And when it came to answering the question of why the ship sank, the tribunal settled on the following answer. Only God knows. Well, I think a a fair few other people know as well, mate. But I'm not going to be the one to tell Gustavus, although, you know, you can if you like. In reality, the end result was sadly that poor old Master Henrik did take the blame for the ship sinking. It was very easy to force the blame on him because, you know, he was dead. It's not as if he could argue his case. No one wanted to point the finger at Gustavus. Understandable. The bloke loved a scrap, and you generally didn't want to be on the receiving end of it. And uh, so, the inquiry and the tribunal ended up being a bit of a non-event, uh, as they weren't about to—they you know, weren't about to say, "Ah, yes, Your Majesty, we've." We, we've figured it out and it was you what done it. So I think we uh, I think we chalk this one up as a happy ending here because it ended up, the, the, the fact that the tribunal ended up being a non-event meant that no one got scapegoated for the fact that the king was extremely horny for heavy artillery. Anyway, the Vasa is now at the bottom of the Stockholm Harbour. It's not anyone's fault, certainly not the king's anyway, but what are we going to do about it now? Well... There were attempts to raise the wreck. An English engineer named Ian Ballmer was brought in shortly after the ship sank, and he managed to do two things. One, he managed to right the ship. It was leaning to the side, and he managed to straighten it. Great job, Ian. Love your work. And two, he managed to get the ship stuck much more securely into the mud as a consequence of straightening it up. Great job, Ian. Love your work. Raising sunken ships is not an easy thing to do. So let's not go after old mate Ian too much here. The usual method was to use two hulks, ships that can't sail. Um, align them on either, shi- uh, on either side of the ship. Fill the hulks with water so their waterline becomes extremely low, almost, the, almost to the point that they're about to sink themselves. You then attach uh, ropes and hooks to the wreck underneath the water. Pump the water out from the hulks, which brings their waterline back up, lifting the wreck up a little bit. You then tow the hulks and the wreck to shallower water, flood the hulks again, resecure the wreck, pump the water out, etc, etc. And bit by bit, you bring the wreck closer and closer to the surface. The thing was, the Vasa was now so securely stuck in the mud at the bottom of the harbour that this technique just did not work. People couldn't shift the damn thing. And so it stayed there, stuck beneath the water for over three centuries. Not all of it, mind you, about 30 years after it sank, long after the death of Gustavus, the Swedes realised, oh wait, hang on a second everyone, there are a ton of really good guns down on that ship, let's let's bloody go get them. A very successful salvaging operation saw them retrieve no less than 50 of the cannons from the wreck of the Vasa, not too bad at all. And the salvaging operation was also very successful when it came to doing a whole bunch of extra damage to the ship. I mentioned how well the ship had been preserved during its time underwater. Well, we didn't help much as humans. In fact, most of the damage sustained by the Vasa when it was at the bottom of the Stockholm Harbour um, was done to it by us. But we'll we'll come to that in, in just a little bit. Anyway, after sinking, the ship remained at the bottom of the harbour for 333 years. And we can talk now about some of the damage that it suffered, Um, Most of the iron on the ship rusted away to nothingness. The details on the sculptures were worn away by erosion. Um, And as I say, the ship also sustained a lot of damage from human activity. Salvage efforts, which broke apart sections of the hull and, and deck to feast on the delicious armaments inside. However, aside from all this, the Vasa ended up being preserved extremely well. In the Stockholm Harbour, and there are a couple of reasons for this. We'll, we'll talk through them now. How does it check stats? It's it's unbelievable, right? The water in the Stockholm Harbour ended up being perfect for preserving this shipwreck. First of all, the water there hardly has any oxygen in it, and is so cold, right, that things like shipworms, which will ordinarily munch through a shipwreck like nobody's business, they can't survive there, and amazingly this is this is where it really goes off the rails amazingly the fact that stockholm's harbor has been very heavily polluted for a very long time actually aided in the ship's preservation now you think what the what the bloody hell people are dumping stuff into the harbor toxic materials whatever else obviously this is going to do this is going to do an absolute number on a wooden shipwreck at the bottom of the harbor no the opposite Toxic pollutants killed off all the microorganisms that might have otherwise eaten away at the ship. So, between the lack of oxygen, the cold, and the pollution, the Stockholm Harbour ended up being the perfect place to park a shipwreck for 300 years. All the woods and the leather and the cloth that was on board the Vasa. It survived more or less intact and untouched, if you'll believe it, and and bits that fell off into the mud were preserved there extremely well, so much so that some of the statues and sculptures that fell off, some of the, that I mentioned were so richly painted, some of them buried in the mud were survived and salvaged later in incredible condition. All the joinery that was done by iron nails wasted away, bits of the ship fell off and and, uh, 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 fell apart, but all of the joinery done with wooden fastenings held reasonably firm. Some parts of the ship's collapse after a few centuries of erosion in the water, but for the most part, the ship remained in exceptional condition, given the circumstances. But what happened to it? What happened to this shipwreck as it sat there at the bottom of the freezing cold Stockholm harbour for centuries? Well, the answer to that is not a lot people didn't exactly forget about the vasa but it also didn't really remain in people's active memories either they knew it was there but they didn't really do anything about it for a very long time in fact as the centuries passed the only real interac- interaction that the vasa had with the modern human world was when a 19th century ship dropped its anchor right through the middle of the upper stern castle perfect but then In the 1950s, a Swedish amateur archaeologist Anders Franzen took a renewed interest in rediscovering and potentially raising the Vasa. It took years of research and searching, but eventually Franzen found the wreck in 1956 using a homemade probe device. People knew that it was in the Stockholm harbour. They didn't know exactly where after 300 years. It's not as if there was a big map where, with an X that marks marked the spot. Franzen found it, however. Well done, mate. All your hard work paying off. And immediately, right, people were so excited by the rediscovery of the VASA. Immediately, A huge number of harebrained schemes to raise the wreck were put forth, just like the Titanic. Episode 261, Get Across It. For those who listened to that episode about the Titanic, you'll remember how people had ideas like, why don't we freeze the wreck, encase it in ice, and then it will float to the ocean's surface. Or, why don't we fill it full of ping pong balls? That'll get it done. Uh these ideas did not get the go ahead, despite the fact that, uh, look, you know, when you're talking about filling a, a massive wreck that's four kilometers below the ocean's surface with ping pong balls, that's a little more difficult. Maybe only 32 meters separating the Vasa from the from from the water surface. Well, maybe the ping pong ball idea should have got a second look, but no. Instead, however, it was decided that a more traditional approach would be taken. Over the next two years, divers dug out tunnels in the mud beneath the Vasa, so slings could be put underneath it before dragging it up to the surface with lifting pontoons, using a technique that really isn't all that different from the old fill the hulks with water and then pump it all out over and over again. These divers, by the way, who were digging these tunnels, they were doing incredibly dangerous work. They were removing mud from tunnels in pitch darkness with a three-century-old shipwreck right above them. It could have collapsed at any moment. But despite the danger, I'm happy to say there were no serious incidents or accidents as the Vasa was raised. Um, Not a single one of the divers had any real issues. And uh, the whole operation, largely speaking, went off without a hitch. Uh, After a long and painstaking process, the Vasa was slowly but surely lifted out of the mud. But before it was brought to the surface, the pontoons were towed to a shallower area where divers prepared the Vasa to be brought back into the open air. They cleaned it out. They removed mud and debris, they repaired and replaced parts of the structure to make sure it wouldn't fall apart, they plugged up the holes left by the iron that had rusted away. And then, with everything in readiness, on the 8th of April 1961, the Vasa resurfaced after 333 years underwater. And, pleasingly, just as they had in 1628 thousands of onlookers lined the Stockholm waterfront to witness the Vasa returning, triumph, well, maybe not triumphant, but extant at least, which is more than you can say about most 17th century warships these days. The Vasa was held in a small temporary building for almost 30 years until 1988 when it was moved into the Vasa Museum, which was officially opened in 1990. And it's there that you can go and see the Vasa to this very day. I remember doing so during a visit to Stockholm a few years ago, and it really is quite an experience. I recommend it very highly. The ship is in incredible nick. And it's not just the wreck, right? The wreck of the Vasa has provided, provided us with a huge amount of knowledge and information about the ship, but it goes so much further than that. It tells us about life. In 17th century Sweden and 17th century Europe, the ship was filled with artifacts that are extremely well-preserved, not just the weapons and cannons and that sort of thing, but clothing and tools and games and personal belongings and even food and drink. I remember seeing a backgammon set that was made 300 and something years ago, an incredible thing to still have around today. Conservationists have to work tirelessly to preserve the ship now that it's above water, as, uh, as coming into contact with oxygen has, has not been good for the wreck and uh, it is deteriorating rather faster than they would like. But nonetheless, the Vasa is the best preserved 17th century warship in existence and a source of remarkable insight into this period of Swedish history. So. If you're ever in Stockholm, head to the Vasa Museum and check it out, because even after lasting 333 years underwater, the Vasa won't be around forever. But that's it. Well, that's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Vasa. And I do hope that you enjoyed hearing about it, particularly those listeners who got in touch. Uh, once again, if you want to follow in the footsteps of the exalted listeners like, who do we have? JJ, Ola, Rachel, Enrique, Lucas, and Ola. Uh, you want to get in touch like they did, halfarsehistory.net, use the contact form there and get in touch. Um, before all the boring, normal housekeeping stuff, though, I do want to offer an apology to your listeners. I know this episode came out a couple of days late. I do apologize to that. Last week, I was on holiday in Italy, and holy moly, I, oh boy, I had some adventures. If you want to hear about some, some of the adventures I had uh, on this trip with Megan in Italy, you can have a listen to my other podcast. Have a listen to this. Uh, type that into Spotify, you should see it. Uh, it's a just a silly, just another white boy with a podcast type deal with my friend Dennis. Um, we just Get on the phone and have a chat every week about what's been going on. It's very light and frothy. Um, uh, it, it's got nothing to do with history or anything like that. But if you enjoy listening to me talk, you will enjoy half of Have a Listen to This every week. Um, so go and have a listen to that if you want. You don't have to. I can't make you. I'm not your dad. You're not going to get in trouble if you don't. Uh, but it is there in case you want to uh, want to get across that. But uh, now we'll do all the boring housekeeping stuff. half house of course. Find all the old episodes there. Uh, Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, whatever else. Make sure you leave a review if you've got the time. Uh, If you're on Spotify, you've got no excuse. It's just clicking a button. You don't even get to write anything. But on iTunes, I do appreciate reading people's uh, reviews. Good and bad. The bad reviews are always, um, always very amusing. But uh, no, thank you to so thank you so much to everyone who's leaving positive reviews. Um, algorithmically, it's been a huge boon. Apparently, we've got new listeners coming in every week. And by the way, new listeners, welcome. By all means, welcome. I've had so many emails from new listeners telling me they've just come across the show, thrilled to have two hundred something episodes to get across. So uh, it is wonderful to have you, and it's wonderful to have all the old hands around as well, uh, all the way back to episode one or wherever you joined us along the way. It's good to have you as part of the Half Ass History family. So thanks for sticking around. If you want to buy some merch, you can do that, of course, uh, uh, at the on the T Public website. Thanks to T Public for uh, making all the merch for us there. Um, head over to the website again, halfhourshistory.net. Make sure you follow that link to go to the um, the shop. That's the only way that uh, that the money actually ends up in my account because of the affiliation code or something that's in. The, I don't understand it, but just click that link. Uh, and if you want to support the show um, in a less tangible sense. You can, of course, do it on Patreon, patreon.com slash half history, a range of benefits available for people who want to sign up there. Show notes, behind the scenes stuff, early access to episodes, uncut episodes, all sorts of stuff going on there. Exclusive merch. Get across it if you feel like it. Or again, don't. I'm not your dad. But do tell your friends. Do tell your enemies. Tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. And I will see you back here for more Half-House History next week. Hopefully the next episode will be on time. But don't hold your breath. Going to close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Ion Whipan, who asks, People in Sweden keep talking about how great it is to live there, but are we sure they don't all just have Stockholm Syndrome?